Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the whole Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we uh, begin this new series, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each of our hearts uh, to see who you are more clearly and to have our hearts warmed and uh, challenged and encouraged by these truths. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning this morning to uh, a new series in the Doctrine of the Trinity. We're taking five weeks to look at uh, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what that means. But as we begin that, I want to, to simply step back for a moment and ask the question, why, why are we talking about the Trinity at all? Why are we spending this length of time to, to talk about something that nobody really understands, that seems a bit kind of academic and a bit intellectual? Really, would we lose anything if we just never talked about the Trinity at all? Isn't it just a, a stuffy bit of theology that there's the, there's the God I love and the God I believe in, and then there's the Trinity? And isn't it just easier just to say, he's big, he's powerful, and let's, let's leave it at that? Well, the Trinity uh, comes into our, into our uh, Irish society in a number of different ways. We've got Trinity College. Uh, we've got uh, people, if you see a hearse, people will often cross themselves, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But even more so, uh, the language of Trinity and who God is forms the very basis for our constitution, for how we, how we govern our land. Let me read to you the, the opening uh, couple of sentences from the Irish constitution. They're quite remarkable. They say, in the name of the Most Holy Trinity, from whom is all authority, and to whom, as our final end, all actions of both men and states must be referred. We, the people of Era, humbly acknowledge all our obligations to our divine Lord Jesus Christ, who sustained our fathers through centuries of trial. Do you hear that? That right at the top of how we govern how we make our laws is talk of God as Trinity, the most holy Trinity, that He is the one who, who gives governments and states authority, that He's the one who we're ultimately answerable to. That far from being a, a stuffy bit of theology, it is immensely practical. And that's one of the things, that, in fact, it is the thing that I want to impress upon you all here this morning that the Trinity is an immensely applicable and practical doctrine, that it's not just an intellectual exercise for the next five weeks. Let me try and, uh, and convince you of that. First, Christians believe that we are made in the image of God, that who we are as human beings resembles and reflects something of what God is like. Wouldn't it be important, therefore, to do a little bit of study, do a little bit of thinking as to what this God is like in whose image we are created? Wouldn't it matter to our own understanding of ourselves to get to know the God who made us, the God who reveals Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? 
Secondly, we, uh, people talk a lot these days about God being love. You know, you ask anybody out in the street, what's your favorite verse of the Bible? And they'll all say, oh, it's, God is love. Well, what kind of love? What kind of love does God express? What kind of love is He? How does He show it to His image bearers, to, to humanity? Third, another big concern for us uh, in our day and our society is the issue of authority. We don't really like authority. We don't uh, like the idea of people being in charge. People who are in charge and people who are in authority tend not to care. They tend not to love. So, one of the questions that we want to think through and wrestle with is, could there possibly be a connection between love and authority? Could those two things go hand in hand? What would that look like? How would that change how we view those in authority? How would that change how we view the authority of God, if it is indeed a loving authority? Not only this, but the Trinity speaks to how we work, how we create things, how we view intimacy, how we view our relationships, uh, sex, to say nothing of issues of tolerance and equality. The doctrine of the Trinity is an immensely practical doctrine. And towards the end of, uh, of the sermon this morning, I'll, I'll go back and I'll explore four more areas where I think it's really practical for us. So, how do we begin to explore the doctrine of the Trinity? Today is a, uh, is a, is a groundwork-laying sermon. It's very common. It's our common practice here just to pick books of the Bible and just go through them. Uh, but today, as we begin this topical series on the doctrine of the Trinity, we're simply laying some groundwork. So, how should we approach this? First, we approach our study of the Trinity with an attitude of humility. This is crucial. You see, we can study God in one of two ways. We can, act, we can either study God through a microscope or through a telescope. Studying God through a microscope places us as the, as the big ones, as the ones in authority, as the ones who put God on the slide and dissect every part of Him. That we are the examiners, that we pull Him apart and see every part of Him. Or we can study God through a telescope, acknowledging right from the start that we are the small ones and that He is the big one. That as we gaze upon Him, absolutely, we see true things about Him. We learn things that are true, but we never learn everything. We can never hold the whole horizon of His majesty in our gaze. Can I submit to you that we study God like that? We study God acknowledging that He is big and we are small. It would be wrong if at the end of these five weeks you went out of uh, the doors here and thought, Trinity, tick, done, what's next? Because you see, we don't master God. He masters us. 
We will never master something like the doctrine of the Trinity. It masters us. It speaks to, to who we are. It informs our understanding of ourselves. So we must approach our study with an attitude of humility, acknowledging that He is big and we are small. Secondly, we need to recognize right from the beginning that we, we have a bit of a problem when it comes to the study of God or the study of the Trinity. Let me illustrate it like this. You may have had this happen to you where you've been at a, at a dinner party or uh, out for a drink with some friends, and a conversation starts about God, and you start talking about God, just generic G-O-D. And what you realize as that conversation progresses is what the other person means by God is very different to what you mean. That there is a, uh, that people import meaning into this word. You see, this is a, uh, an illustration of an issue that we've got that we tend to make God in our own image and project him upwards. That's what superheroes are. Superheroes are just perfected versions of ourselves made bigger, made more powerful. We cannot do that with God. We assume meaning. You talk to the atheist on the street who says, I don't believe in God. It'd be really worthwhile next time somebody says that to you just to ask, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Because I would imagine that you don't believe in, it, in Him too. You see, we cannot do theology. We cannot do our study of God from the ground up. We need God to tell us what He's like. We need revelation. Our issue is that, as humans is that we don't think clearly when it comes to God. We idolize ourselves. And so we need God to, to speak we need the elephant, as it were, from that illustration where, where one guy is hanging on to the tail and says it's a rope, and another on the leg saying that's the tree. We need the elephant to speak, to disclose himself, to say what he's really like. And Christians believe that that is what we have in the Bible, that the Bible is God's self-disclosure. It is His revelation of what he is like. That makes the Bible immensely important for our study, immensely important for the next five weeks. And that is why we will keep coming back to the Scriptures. The question then flows is, well, is the Bible an accurate portrayal of what God is really like? Is what we read in the pages of Scripture what God is really like. The German theologian Karl Rahner concluded, yes. Says that, that what you see or how you see God acting in space and in time is how he is in eternity. That as you see the Father sending the Son, as you see the Son submitting to his Father's will, that that's not just an accommodation, that that's just not man's reflection, but that is how God actually is. 
Now, why is that the case? Well, you see, one of the things that the Bible is really concerned with is helping us to know God. We read about his character, we read about his deeds, we read about his thoughts. I am the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, is what he says to Moses in Exodus 34. Why? Because we are made for a relationship with him. The Bible shows us what God is really like in order that we can relate to him. Think about any relationship that you find yourself in, whether it's with a, a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or even just, even just a good friend, that that relationship is based fundamentally on your knowledge of that person. That if you do not have accurate knowledge of that person, you cannot say, to have, you cannot say that you have a true relationship with them. The Bible wants to draw us into relationship with God and so gives us a true picture, an accurate portrayal of what God is really like. Does it tell us everything exhaustively? No. But does it tell us true things about Him? Yes. How God reveals Himself is how He actually is. Do you understand? This is huge for us for three reasons. First, it means that the Bible is a reliable source for understanding what God is like. That what you hold on your laps this morning is God's self-disclosure. That it is not merely men's musings or ecstatic reflections on God but it is what he's like. That means that we can go to it in order to understand the God who made us, the God who's there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, it's huge because it shows us that how the persons of the Trinity relate as we see them on the pages of Scripture, as we see Jesus walking this earth, that is how they relate in eternity. For example, the Son submitting to the Father's authority. That's something that we will explore in the weeks to come. And third, it means that the terms, the words that are used, Father, Son, Spirit, it means that those terms actually matter. That they aren't accommodations. They are fundamental to who God is as Trinity. It is therefore not appropriate for us to address God as mother or the son as daughter. Why? Remember, how he reveals himself is how he is. They are defined by their relationship. The father is a father because he has a son. Do you see? They are not three individuals. They are three persons. So, when we look at their relationship, what do we see? What do we see when we look at how the persons of the Trinity relate? And for this, we're going to look uh, just at a few verses from Matthew 3. Let me read them. We're going to read from Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What do we have in these uh, four verses or so? What do we see here? Well, at its most basic, we see a really important example of all three members of the Trinity on stage at the same time. Do you see? You have the Son in the waters of baptism. You have, <coughs> excuse me, you have the Spirit descending like a dove, and you have the Father speaking from heaven. You want another example of all three members of the Trinity on the stage at the same time? Creation, first page of your Bible. You've got the speaker, you've got the word, and you've got the breath. But here we have Jesus' baptism, and the Father speaking from heaven. And what does he declare? Verse 17, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What does the Father declare? His love for his Son. He declares that he loves his Son. And the Spirit descends as the visible sign and seal of that love. Philippa earlier read from Isaiah 42, which talks about God delighting in His servant. He says, I have put my Spirit upon my servant in whom I delight. That the Spirit descending like a dove on the Son is a confirmation of the delight of the love of the Father for the Son. So, when we say, God is love, Remember everybody's favorite verse when we say God is love, what do we mean? What kind of love? It's other person centered love. That's the main point. That's what it's all about. The Trinity is marked by relations of other person centered love. Each person of the Trinity finds its delight in loving the other. And this is the consistent picture of what God is like. All the way through John's gospel, you get this sort of language. You get John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Or John 5.20, which we'll look at in two weeks' time, which says, the Father loves the Son and shows Him the things that He is to do. That this is the, the repeated refrain, the Father loves the Son. That the, the Trinity is marked by other person-centered love. Now, what is the opposite of other person-centered love? It's not hate. It is, in fact, self-love. The opposite of other person-centered love 
is self-love. St. Augustine, remember Augustine, St. Augustine, who lived uh, in about 400 AD, he wrote a work called The City of God, and in it he describes two cities. There's the city of God, and there's the city of man. And what is surprising here is that both have love in them. Both the city of God and the city of man have love. But it is two very different types of love. In the city of God, there is other person-centered love, preferring each other's needs, setting aside our rights for the good of others. And in the city of man, there is self-love. Being twisted in on ourselves, standing on our own rights, on our own entitlement, loving our own needs, loving ourselves. You see, other person-centered love is the pattern of godly, godlike love. It is how we ought to love because we are God, God's image bearers. So when you love outside of yourself, when you lovingly serve a friend or a family member, when you set aside your rights, when you say, you know what, you go ahead, those are expressions of divine love. When you love a, a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, when you love them almost more than you love yourself, this is other person-centered love. Today is Remembrance Sunday. It's not a political comment that I'm about to make, simply an observation. I simply want to acknowledge that, that for an 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old man, for them to step onto the field of battle, to enter into that theater of war, that's an expression of other person-centered love. And I would simply encourage us, if nothing else, to remember the Irish men who, through no compulsion or conscription, volunteered to take up arms and to express other person-centered love. That is what we are created for. That's what we are destined for. Four final things. How does other person-centered love challenge us? How does it change us? How does it impact our lives? Firstly, pride. We all have a sense of what pride is. No one can match me. I am superior in my power, in my intellect, even in, in my spirituality. I'm holier than you are. This is self-love at its most obvious. People curved in, navel-gazing, looking only at themselves. 
looking at their own prowess, at their own uh, intellectual or academic ability, at their own supremacy. How does other person-centered love challenge that? Other person-centered love points us uh, to the divine love of the gospel, to, to, the, to the Son, to the Lord Jesus, who, who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, as Philippians 2 says, but made himself nothing. Who didn't pursue his own power, who didn't pursue his own rights, his own prowess, and became nothing for us. Secondly, other person-centered love challenges our envy. You feel that, don't you? When somebody does well and you don't, or somebody succeeds after you have failed, you find yourself that you're, you're, you're jealous, you resent them. Envy is, is jealousy of another's good, not rejoicing with those who rejoice, but but resenting who they are and what they've achieved and what they've done. The other person-centered love of the Trinity is unenvious. What we see in the pages of Scripture, what we see in the Trinity, are people, are two persons of the Trinity, unenviously delighting in one another, them sharing in love for a third. This is what we see in Matthew, we see the Father and the Spirit joining together in their love of the Son, unenvious. God the Father never resents His Son, never sits in His throne in heaven and says, I can't believe Jesus is getting all the worship. He loves to love the Son. He delights to see us love the Son. He delights to see Him glorified. And as God's image bearers, that is the kind of love that we are called to, that type of unenvious love, delighting in another's good, even when it hurts, even when it's been over our head, to unenviously love one another. Third, apathy. Think of the Catherine Tate character that was famous a few years ago here in the UK. And her, ca- her catchphrase, I'm above it. Am I bothered? That's apathy. To be unmoved. To look at someone's plight and to be unmoved by it. That's apathy. And it is self-love. It is self-love to be unmoved to act. And the Trinity challenges us on that level too because it shows us the other person-centered love of the Father who sends the Son, who says, I have heard the cry of my people who hears and acts. Aren't we grateful this morning that God didn't sit in heaven unmoved by the broken mess that we have made? Aren't we glad of the Son who, as He approaches Jerusalem, weeps over her, who's moved 
who's moved to the extent that he sets his face resolutely to the cross. And he goes and he lays down his life. Other person-centered love is love that is moved by other people. And finally, perhaps most surprising or insidious of them all, is boredom. So often we demand to be entertained. We're always wanting something new, a new idea, a new gadget, a new album, a new movie, a new TV show, a new this, a new that. Entertain me. That's what, that's what X Factor and the voice and all that they're all about. It's about next, it's about conveyor belt entertainment because we're so easily bored. And it creeps into our theology that we get bored with old, old ideas about God. We get bored with old theology. We get bored with the old, old story of the gospel. And we need to see it for the self-love that it is, that we want to be entertained, that we want to have our, our intellect massaged. It's self-love. One of the most profound and maybe disturbing examples of this uh, is actually in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, not in the Lord of the Rings, in, a, in, a, uh, in a, a preceding book called The Silmarillion. In The Silmarillion, it recounts uh, a giant spider, a spider called Ungoliant. And it says that, that she was so twisted with her hunger, with her self-love, that in her finest, most desperate need, she consumed herself. That's what we do. We consume ourselves to death, wanting to be amused. The danger here is that we can become bored of the gospel. We say, let's reimagine God. We say, did God really say? We go back to our problem of trying to make God in our own image in order to amuse ourselves more. So what's the answer? The answer is ultimately to see it for the self-love that it is and run to the other person-centered love of the Trinity. You see, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus not only shows us other person-centered love, but he dies in order that we might have that heart. That in his, in his love for us, in his going to the cross on our behalf, he takes upon himself our pride, our, empath, our envy, our apathy, our boredom, our, our twisted notions of self-love, our mistaken ideas of who God is, and he dies for them. He takes them upon himself, and he gives us a new heart, a heart that reflects his priorities, a heart that is engaged by and desirous of other person-centered love, a heart that no longer wants to look at ourselves, but wants to look upwards to God and outwards to other people. It's Jesus that makes it possible. He dies for our pride. He is moved by compassion for us, and by faith in Him, we can love more than ourselves. 
And when we do that, we find infinite joy and infinite delight. And the surprising thing is that that joy and that delight is not found in loving ourselves, but in loving God and others. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge this morning all those ways in which we are given to self-love, preferring our own needs, our own rights, being proud, envious, jealous, apathetic, bored. We thank you that the, uh, that the Trinity challenges us that it encourages us towards a life of other person-centered love, but it does so much more than that, Father, that it, that it makes it possible. That it makes it possible for, for each of us to have a new heart, to have new desires, to love outside of ourselves. We pray that in our workplaces and in our college campuses and wherever you would have us go, Father, that, uh, that you would help us to be people and to be a community that is marked by other person-centered love. And we ask these things in the name of the Son whom you love, Jesus Christ. Amen.